which is our goal, our vision for this year, for us as a church, to focus on developing loving relationships, of improving the quality of our fellowship, the closeness of our relationships with one another. Just to revise very quickly before I pray, G stands for? Genuine. <laughs> what does G stand for? Genuine. Genuine one. We'll start again. It's a five-week series we're launching. We're starting today. Genuine truth-tellers. Genuine in our relationships. Genuine honest in who we are with God. Genuine particularly in being uh, relationships with each other, being honest with one another. R stands for being? When someone tells you the truth, to be open and receptive. Not resistant, not defensive, but open. Taking the risk that someone might speak both an encouraging word but also perhaps a corrective word into our lives. Of being open to God's word being spoken into our life but also the word of a brother or sister, that God speaks to us both through the scriptures and through other believers as well as life circumstances. A stands for being active stewards that God has gifted us with spiritual gifts, with talents, with abilities, with resources and he wants us not simply to be hands in pocket or sitting on our hands but actually engaged, involved, participating in the life of the church, serving the Lord Jesus. C stands for community. God wants us again to be a community of people together where we know, love and accept one another, where we are involved, where we are watching one another and speaking the truth to each other, where we are linked to him, branches in the vine, parts of the body, stones in the temple, all connected, being a community, an identifiable community of him and of his grace. And E stands for encouragement, which is where we get to today. And encouragement has both a strong positive sense to it, but it also has a strong correcting sense to it. We're going to focus primarily upon the former, but the scriptures certainly have that double dimension to it, that God wants us to be a group of people who are encouraging one another, and hence our reading this morning. There are three men that I want to talk to you about this morning. One is Barnabas, the second is James, and the third is the Lord Jesus. And to see what we learn from these three people about this teaching of encouragement. Book of Hebrews says, chapter 3, verse 13, that we are to encourage each other daily. 3.13. But encourage one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Encourage one another. Exhort one another. We live in a world where we're going against the tide and it's so easy to become discouraged, to be attacked by the evil one and we can become hardened, unresponsive. Therefore, encourage one another. Get beside each other. That's what it means to come alongside and to strengthen. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 says, And let us consider how to encourage one another to love and good deeds, to provoke one another. Think about what can I do at the end of this service or in this service to encourage my brothers and sisters that we might be better followers of the Lord Jesus. Verse 25 says, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. See, discouraged, knocked out, deceived by the hard deceitfulness, hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Uh, so not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another and all the more you see the day approaching as you see the Lord Jesus coming. Well, that's the topic that we want to embrace this morning. When was the last time someone encouraged you? Some of you will be 
Got it. For some of you, you'll be thinking. When was the last time you felt appreciated, felt needed? Without it, our souls wither. We dry up a little bit. The wind comes out of the sail. We need the affirming, encouraging word of one another. When was the last time somebody criticised you? Easier to recall? I don't know what it is about our nature, but that's the reality, isn't it? You get told nine things which are wonderful or affirmation and being encouraged and one person or whatever says one negative thing, guess which one you remember? Eh, The negative, don't we? What is there about us that does that? And here is a challenging question that I've been provoked about over the last few weeks. Are you sure that you're not in fact hurting someone by the way that you're trying to help them? Are you sure that you are in fact not hurting someone when in fact you're trying to help them? The way we speak, we say certain things and eventually we come out with a positive but in delivering the positive there's a whole context of or even a statement of some negativity. We need wisdom and grace, do we not? So let us pray for that and then we'll jump in to listen to these three men. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we assembled together this morning in your name, in your presence. For many of us, most of us, family, your um, brothers and sisters, linked in your community, your new community. You are at work in each of our lives. And so we ask this morning, Lord Jesus, that you might be pleased by your spirit, through your word, the scriptures, to again instruct us, shape us, where appropriate, comfort, where necessary, correct or confront. But Lord Jesus, this is a great opportunity we have to not just learn together but to be improved together, that we might become obedient followers, passionate followers, encouragers, just like you were. So speak to us and hear us, we pray, in your great name. And everyone said... Let's focus on our first man. He was from the island of Cyprus. He was a Levite. His name was Joseph. But he had such a generous nature about him that when he became a follower of the Lord Jesus, they gave him a nickname. It'd be interesting for us to do that, wouldn't it? Give each other nicknames according to our characteristics. The Bible certainly doesn't say this, but I imagine this guy, his nickname was Barnabas. That's his nickname, not his name. Barnabas means son of encouragement because that's what he was. He was just one of those positive, upbeat, encouraging people. He was generous, as I'm going to explain in just a moment, and he was always giving, not just things, but strength to the soul of another through his words or through his actions. That's what the word encouragement means, paraclesis, to come alongside and to strengthen and to strengthen in the right way seeing something good or appropriate, strengthening it, affirming it. Seeing something inappropriate, off track, then coming alongside and calling it foolishness. That's fantastic, that's stupid. Speaking the truth, genuinely, into another's heart and soul so that they're not off track and being deceived. I imagine Barnabas to be a man who is large, who's smiling, he's got a twinkle in his eyes, he's got a big black bushy beard, 
He's got a vice-like grip and he's got a wingspan of about three metres. I had one such man in my very first church. Wes was his name, Wesley. He'd had a difficult Christian journey, a Baptist pastor, but who had been damaged over the journey and had resigned from that and was now working in um, a Sydney mission supporting people and picking up drunks and providing beds for men and caring for people. And Wes used to be part of our church family. He was in his 70s, late 60s, early 70s when I met him and he was renowned for, he's about six foot four, tall man, huge arms. And every widow that came to the church, Seaforth Baptist Church, he embraced, wrapped his arms around them several times. And they loved it. Only he could do it. You had to be Wes to do it. He was just so giving. He's like Barnabas. He just became known and looked to. Well, Barnabas was a man that we read in an earlier chapter in Acts, chapter 4, that his family, they were Levite, and Levite's not a priest but an assistant to the priest. He couldn't, they family couldn't own land in Israel. So their family moved to the island of Cyprus in the Mediterranean, as you would. Bought some land, obviously some means. And in the process of time becomes a follower of Jesus. And in Jerusalem, in the church, there are people in great need, financially struggling, whether they're unemployed or whether they're being persecuted or whatever the situation is. And so he says, I've got some spare land on the island of Cyprus. He sells it. Whether he sells all of it or he sells some of it, I'm not sure but he sells a significant amount of it and he brings the money and he gives it to the church, to the elders, the leaders to distribute to the people who had a need. Wow. Generous giver. And often you'll find that the person who is strong on giving encouragement is also a person who has learnt to give other things, whether it's money or whether it's meals or whether it's simply time or just themselves. They're givers. Well, that's what Barnabas was like. Open-hearted, open-handed. God wants us to be a little bit like this. He wants us to be an encourager. Well, let's fast forward a few months, a few years, and in Acts chapter 9 in the passage that Rani read to us, we read about a man whose name is Saul, who was a legend for his hatred of Christians, persecuting them. He's obsessed with it. In Acts chapter 8, an earlier chapter, it talks about how he... um, Saul was ravaging the church by entering house after house, dragging both men and women. He committed them to prison. Did a door-knock campaign after the Christians. Obsessed with it. Not just in Jerusalem, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2 says, Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Obsessed, fanatical. So devoted was he to the God of Israel, to his understanding of truth, that anybody who was opposed or changing that, he was again. So off he goes, and you'll know the story. On the way to Damascus, the Lord Jesus confronts him and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting up on your feet, into the city. Jesus identifies with his people. 
Saul is dramatically changed, converted, and in the very early days of his conversion, effective. Corrected, transformed rather dramatically and still a growth process to happen, but early stages he was effective. Time passes. He gets into trouble in Damascus and with, not sure of the actual sequence of things or when he goes and comes back, but anyway he heads for Jerusalem. When he gets back to Jerusalem, the word spread, he's back. And he wants to join us. He turns up at church on a Sunday morning and the ushers wet themselves. <clears throat> Wouldn't they? The instructions pass out, bolt the doors, warn the others, call the elders, send them. Had the church been praying for his conversion or for his removal? Not told. Interesting question though, isn't it? What would you have prayed? Well anyway, the leaders gather together. They meet to discuss this crisis, this issue. And with all the God-given common sense that they had, they concluded unanimously that he was a charlatan, that it wasn't true, that it was a secret plant. No. No admittance to Saul, the obsessed persecutor of the church, and to Barnabas. Barnabas comes late to that leaders' meeting and when he walks in, he has some good news. I have a new convert. I'd like you to meet him. Excellent. Bring him in. That'd be wonderful. Uh, there's one condition. If you don't accept him, you don't accept me. That's okay, okay. Bring him in. He opens the door and in walks Saul of Tarsus. And the leaders to their credit, listen to Barnabas. When Barnabas speaks up, introduces Saul, they object that he was dangerous. Barnabas corrects them. He was dangerous. Now he's on our side. What had Barnabas done? This is what we are to do. What had Barnabas done? Church had said no. Barnabas went after him sat with him, I surmise spoke with him, heard his story, had a resonance in his own spirit that this was genuine, maybe checked it out, I'm not sure, prayed with him, encouraged him to give it a go of let's go meet the leaders. Barnabas didn't react, he responded, built a bridge, formed a relationship, gave the benefit of the doubt. Question for us, is there a Saul of Tarsus who needs to be introduced into our group, into your group? Will you give them some time? Will you risk the consequences? God wants us to be encouragers. Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Reaching out to those whom others reject, others who are threatened by, befriending, supporting. Barnabas was one of those sorts of people who somehow had the ability to see strengths and gifts in others and to elevate them without intruding themselves. In our world, he would have been glad for Saul to be interviewed on TV and not for him to be standing beside him or for him to be in the back corner of the screen waving hello mum or anything like that. He was happy to promote and elevate others. Well, he does it often. 
In Acts chapter 11, he does it again in Antioch. He encourages the new church there. In Acts chapter 11, verse 25, again, he connects with Saul and brings him to serve on the pastoral team at Antioch and they do an outstanding job. Acts 13, they are set aside for the first missionary journey. Acts 15, it's Barnabas who is now not just encouraging Saul and other saints but there was a guy who fails, a guy who messes up. We don't have all the details, his name is John Mark and for whatever reason he quit, left. But Barnabas didn't give up on him. Saul, who's now become Paul, become a strong, dramatic speaker, leader in the early church. His evaluation of John Mark on that first missionary journey was he failed then, he'll do it again, he's not coming. Paul and Barnabas had a knockdown, drag out fight. It was a fierce encounter. Still happens in the church, doesn't it? Part of our sinful human nature. These guys had a significant disagreement where they parted company. Who was right? I don't know. But I do know this. Paul went with Silas and had a significant ministry. Barnabas went with John Mark and were told not anything about it except at the end of Paul's life, he writes a letter to Timothy and he says, in the midst of all these other names, and get John Mark and bring him to me because he's useful in ministry. Who turned him around? Well, God did, but who did God use? Barney. The guy who was a gift of encouragement. Someone stumbles, come beside them. When someone's struggling, help hold them up. Encourage them. Not to give in or be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There's a lot of rubbish that goes on in the world. And it knocks us about. That's why we need each other and we need to encourage each other. Look around you, brothers and sisters, this morning and notice who's not here. Track them down. Take the offering envelope and ask them to give it to us. No, I'm joking. Don't you dare do that. I would, don't you dare do that. My mum was an Anglican, high Anglican, you know, love the smells and bells and fogs and confusion of the whole thing. She didn't come to faith until at the end of her life. But there was a time when she was going to church and she stopped going at one point. She got on the committee and was cleaning and doing this. And whatever happened, I don't know what happened, but something happened. Some conversation, somebody said something they shouldn't have said, or she heard whatever, and she stopped going. And in their church, they used to have, you'd be given a, a box of envelopes and they would be dated, numbered. And when those came in, you would be ticked off. What do you, you think that has possibilities? <laughs> Not here. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. The reason we have a bag is it's given between you and God. There's no checking up, it's between you and him. Anyway, mum was away for, I don't know, a period of time. She had a knock at the door. Someone from the church came to visit her from the parish council. Guess what they wanted? The offering envelopes. Well, there was fuel for the fire for her. I'm not going back there. She did, eventually. But I, that still burned into my memory. The church is not after people. The church is after... You haven't got a clue, have you? The world out there thinks all we want is your money. We don't want your money. 
but he wants you. He wants you to be in a relationship with him, with the Lord Jesus and not just with him. He wants you in a community of people who are going to love you, support you and care for you, who will encourage you. Barnabas, son of encouragement. Second person for us to listen to this morning is Jesus' half-brother, James. James chapter 2, let me read you part of this and I encourage you to read the whole chapter. James had, I guess, observed this and please note all the characters in the slide are all the same colour, deliberately, that we are to welcome all without distinction. We are all equal, no distinction. My brothers and sisters, James says, James 2 verse 1, do you with your acts of favouritism really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? If a person with gold rings, fine clothes comes to your assembly, if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, have a seat here please, while the one who is poor, you say, oh, stand there, sit there, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Somewhere, sometime, back in the first century, church was about to begin. The believers had gathered and suddenly there are two unfamiliar faces at the door. The first one, Regal. His hands are crusodactylios. Turn and say that to the person beside you. Crusodactylios. It means golden fingered rings 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 and often two rings per finger Roman society just like in our society but with different things you could go to a shop where you could rent wings it was a symbol a status symbol of wealth so you could rent it put your rings on for the occasion and then go back and give the rings back we do the same thing don't we you can hire suits, can't you? Of course you can. So back in that society, these, one of these guys turns up, whether he had rented these rings or whether they are in fact his, he's dressed in a shiny garment, probably white. He's got a lovely Mediterranean tan. He's clearly wealthy. And the ushers at the door wet themselves. Extend the lovely hand. Please come this way. Here is a seat for you right here. Right there, best seat in the house. And all the eyes are watching him. My previous church and in another lifetime, John Hewson, heard of him? His sister was on the edge of our church, used to go to our playgroup and she had two kids and on each of the occasions we dedicated them and the children and on both occasions John Hewson came. When he came dressed in a really nice suit, when he walked down, we only had a centre aisle, when he walked down the centre aisle and was going to sit front end or second row because that's where the parents would be sitting for the child dedication, every eye in the building was on him. Fame has a way of attracting that to you and of course if your eyes are on him, your eyes are not anywhere else. That's what happened on this day. Wealthy guy turns up, everybody notices. Guy turns up in shabby clothes, maybe unkept a little bit, obviously a poor struggling person and he basically gets ignored. He gets noticed enough to say, 
sit over there, sit at my feet, I don't care, stand, sit on the floor. And the eyes are turned back to the wealthy person. Then the worship service begins. Or does it? That sin, favouritism, partiality, noticing some and ignoring others, treating people with distinction, is repeated throughout the church, throughout history. We need to hold the mirror up and say, am I guilty of that? Do I do that? That's not what God wants for us. It's been repeated throughout history. That's what happened to John Wesley. That's why he had to go outside and preach in the gravesides in the fields because the poor people, the common people, weren't welcome in the church. That's what happened to the Booths when they started the Salvation Army. My favourite story about this is of Chuck Smith and I've told this several times. I'm sure I've told it here. Uh, Chuck Smith was <clears throat> solid Bible teacher. As far as I know, he's still alive. He'd be in his 70s or 80s. He's a, a very good Bible teacher. You ought to Google him and see if you can hear some of his... He just opens a Bible and reads a verse and talks about it, reads the next verse and talks about it, does it really well. Anyway, he's back in the 60s. He gets converted and he's pastoring a church, a Presbyterian church, I think it was. doesn't matter. Um, could be any denomination. And people are coming off the beaches, people who are hippies, people coming out of the Jesus movement start coming to his church. And in the process of this explosive growth that was happening, the elders, the deacons of the church got together and they were very upset because the young people who were coming to church were wearing these uh, studded belts. Remember those? And the studded belts, as they sat down, were scratching these ornate pews. And they were very concerned about the damage that these young people were doing and Chuck Smith was horrified. So he said, leave it with me. So he went to the service. He said, you young people who are wearing your studded belts and you're bringing them in and you're scratching the pews, there's only one thing to do. Those pews have got to go. (laughs) He's right, isn't he? He's right. The pews go, the people stay. The Gospel does have a tendency for this upwardly social lift. That those who could be struggling lower socioeconomic situations in life, when they find the Lord Jesus, they discover other sorts of meanings and practices and they suddenly find that they are better savers, they're better tithers, that God blesses them, they're not spending their money on things they once did. And so there is this social uplift that happens with the gospel. And that's wonderful. But the trouble with that is when it also brings with it an elitist attitude or this favouritism where we start treating people as if they're different when in fact we're all the same. We all have the same needs. We all need the same saviour. Stories told of a woman who was born across the tracks. She wanted to join a very fashionable church. I wonder what happened if she wanted to join here. I would expect most of us would welcome her. Some of you are very good at doing this. Not all of us. Anyway, she wanted to join this fashionable church. She goes to the pastor and says she would like to join and the pastor was a little bit shocked because he knew where she came from, the other side of the tracks. He said, I want you to think about it. So she did. She came back. Still keen. Well, let's not be hasty, Pastor said. 
I want you to go home. I want you to read your Bible every day for an hour and then come back and tell me if you would still like to join our church. So she did. She was a little bit put out by that, but she did it. She goes home, reads the Bible every day, an hour every day, comes back, shows the pastor, I want to join the church. He says, just one more. Let's take another week and this time I want you to pray every day and I want you to ask the Lord if he wants you to join our fellowship. I'm thinking that we ought to introduce this for our membership process. I am again joking. Didn't see her. Six months later, pastor bumped into her downtown on the street. He said, what did you decide to do? She said, well, I did what you asked me to do. I went home, I prayed, and one day when I was praying, the Lord said to me, don't worry about not getting into that church. I've been trying to get into that church for 20 years myself. (laughs) James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, history, even our own experiences. I know a Baptist church in country New South Wales, not far from where I was born, where a man back in the 60s, early 70s went to church and because he did not have a suit and tie was sent home. And when he put his suit and tie on, he was allowed to come back. Needless to say, he didn't come back. Those days have gone, haven't they? Oh, no? Our own experience testifies to this inconsistency of a vibrant Christianity which becomes discriminating, which is given to favouritism. Do we do that? Do you do that? If we are the recipients of God's grace, then we are to be gracious to others. Proverbs 22 verse 2 says, Rich and poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. Do we play favourites? Maybe not that example of rich man, poor man, but maybe. But we might play favourites in other ways. How could we play favourites? Well, end of the service. You're hanging around, you're chatting with people and you look across and you see two or three of your friends, people you're close with, people you know. They're standing together and talking. And over there is a person who is a stranger to you, a visitor, perhaps from another congregation, another time, or perhaps here for the very first time or whatever. Who do you go to and why? Is that showing favouritism? Doing what's just comfortable for me? Encouragement, like Barnabas would be, take note of this person who is by themselves. Do what Wes would do, go up to them, get beside them. What about children? Do we show favouritism against children? Do you notice them? Or are we too busy noticing the adults? We need to notice the kids, don't we? What about seniors? Some of the seniors who aren't as mobile, can't move as quickly as you can, who are glad to go to morning tea, are glad to stay, but they need to stay in one spot because of their lack of mobility or for whatever reason. Be easy to ignore. Is that favouritism? What about ethnicity? Is that a reason? So what can we do? Well, notice one another. Acknowledge one another. Include 
one another. Go to the person standing by themselves, a stranger, introduce yourself and then take them to your friends and invite them into the group. Help people to feel welcomed, included, not left out. Don't play favourites. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, is there a soul of Tarsus we need to get beside and listen to to include and introduce to others? James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, are we playing favourites? Is everybody equal? And finally, the Lord Jesus. He says in Matthew 25, a famous story, but a story that we may filter and in the process of filtering it, not hear, in fact, what he is saying. This is the judgment scene at the end of time. Verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All of the angels, millions, all of the nations will be gathered before him. That's a massive gathering. All the people, all the angels. And then he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He put the sheep on his right, goats on his left. And then the king, the Lord Jesus himself, will say to those on his right, the sheep, Come, you that are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry. You gave me some food. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. And you welcomed me. I was naked. You clothed me. I was sick. You took care of me. I was in prison. You visited me. And the righteous will say unto him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food? And when were you thirsty and we gave you something to drink? And when was it we saw that you was a stranger and welcomed you were naked and gave you clothing? When was it that you were sick or in prison and we visited you? And the king will say, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these, the members of my family, the least of these, my beloved, you did it to me. Jesus again identifies with his people. To the choices that we make, do our actions demonstrate that we are sheep, the righteous, that we belong to the Lord Jesus? Or do our actions, choices and attitudes point to us being goats? At this point, the Lord Jesus is not talking about faith in him. He's assuming that. For those who are in a right relationship with him, who are members of his kingdom, who follow him, they will do these basic, practical demonstrations of love because they're connected to him. These are not big miracles that Jesus is talking about. It's not, I was sick and you healed me, I was in prison and you liberated me. No, it's, you spoke to me, you fed me, clothed me, gave me practical help. I was sick, you cared for me. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. You included me, made me part of your family circle. These practical demonstrations of love are very important to the Lord Jesus. In fact, he says that's how he's going to distinguish it. <clears throat> the reality of our relationship with him demonstrated in our practical lives, acts of love. It's not salvation by humanitarianism or salvation by good works. That's not it. It's the overflow of a life which has been transformed by his grace. True faith brings forth fruit. That's the fruit he's looking at. 
which means the Lord Jesus is saying that we are to treat everybody as we would treat him. That's the point of this. As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, as you did it to them, you did it to me. Now, if it was the Lord Jesus, how would we do it? Well, he's saying, as you would do it to me, do that to one another. A challenging word, isn't it? And a high expectation the Lord Jesus has for us as his followers that we are to be encouragers. Finally, the very clear, specific instruction from the Apostle Paul, Romans 15, verse 7, simply says that we are to welcome one another. All different colours, all different shapes, all different sizes, and we are to do that to one another. Welcome one another, therefore, just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, we are to be encouragers. Barnabas, is there a soul we need to introduce? The word of James, that we are to welcome all without distinction or favourites. Men, women, seniors, children, everybody, regardless of ethnicity or education or economic social status. And Jesus challenges us and expects us to treat one another the same way we treat him. So after the service today, think, process. I'm going to ask the Lord to open our eyes, to nudge us by his spirit, to help us raise the fellowship around here. Take that which is good, make it better. Take that which is okay, make it good. To lift it. Take it where it's absent and introduce it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I ask that you might do exactly that, that you might open our eyes to see what you see. In fact, Lord, to see people as you see them, as important, as significant, as those made in your image, as those for whom you died to bring into a forever relationship with you. Lord, use us. Help us to meet up, to talk at length, to be open, to be honest, to welcome all without distinction and most of all, to be a church that reflects your open-hearted, open-handedness as you gave and been gracious to us. So, Lord, help us to give and to be gracious to all others. We ask in your name. Amen.